August 2011 is a month that I will never forget. I was 11 then and I'm 20 now and to this day I wake up crying from nightmares. I was woken up to the sound of men screaming and glass shattering. In that moment my heart sank to the pit of my stomach and I felt like fainting because I knew something was wrong. I ran to the window and saw groups of men smashing the entrance of the store that we lived above with bats and I knew that if they broke in they would easily make their way up to our flat from the back door. I was crying. I was deafened by the sound of my own heartbeat. The images of the Tottenham riots flashed before my eyes of houses being looted and burnt, of women and children crying. So I called the police and all they said was, I'm sorry, but we're helpless. The only thing that I could think of was, we had nothing to do with Mark Duggan, we had nothing to do with police brutality, so why were we being punished? Among the crowds I saw faces I recognised, customers we had served just nights ago. And in that moment, my sympathies shifted. All I could think of was, if you're mad at the police, if you're mad at the MPs, then why are you here? Why are you wrecking your own streets? I invite you today to join me on this journey where I try to answer questions that have puzzled me for years. Welcome to this search for understanding as I talk you through different explanations that I have found for the events that occurred. In this podcast, I will be trying to make sense of why the writers chose to damage and loot their own local areas. Then, we will look into how the local community, along with how the state responded, and why they did so. But first, to really understand exactly what happened, we have to take a step back to what many believe caused the 2011 England riots. The killing of Mark Duggan. 4th of August 2011. Mark Duggan had collected a gun from Leighton, North London, and was being followed by a specialist firearms unit. When the minicab in which Duggan had been travelling in entered Ferry Lane, Tottenham, the officers forced a hard stop. When Duggan stepped out, an officer known only as V53 shot twice. Killing. Duggan. Rumours circulated that Duggan had been deliberately killed by the police. These accusations were taken up by the Black Independent Advisory Group, which is established to challenge policing in Haringey Borough, which Tottenham falls under. On 6 August, activists from the group, along with Duggan's family and about a hundred protesters, demonstrated outside Tottenham Police Station. Crowds gathered and the situation became extremely tense. Two police cars were set alight and rioting began. Riot officers arrived to disperse the crowds, but they were met by bottles and fireworks, and the rioters ran wild. Between the 6th of August and 11th of August, the riots spread to various areas, including Croydon, Hackney, Bromley, and even areas outside of London, such as Birmingham and Nottingham. Across the country, the rioters set police cars on fire, broke into various stores. The most popular were Argos, Tesco's, Curry's and JD Sports. In Croydon, a furniture store with flats above it was set on fire and a Polish woman jumping from the first floor, surrounded by flames, into the arms of a man became a defining image of the riots. It's estimated that in total about £200 million worth of damage was caused. So, what were my first thoughts? Well, immediately after the riots, The images of the crimes committed by the rioters flooded the TV screens and social media alike. 
Public figures such as Philip Schofield called the rioters brainless thugs, and to be honest, I myself completely agreed. Many researchers supported this cliché criminal opportunism view, and in their article, Shopocalypse, Now Consumer Culture and the English Riots of 2011, James Treadwell, Daniel Briggs, Simon Willow, and Steve Hall argue that the rioters were incorporated in a competitive capitalist world in which they desired to progress in. The majority of the rioters came from very disadvantaged backgrounds. 78% of those who appeared before court were already on the Department of Work and Pensions National Benefit Database, and research shows that rioters were likely to come from deprived areas with higher than average levels of unemployment and free school meals. In normal circumstances, they have no outlet for their frustration of being stagnant, no political party that expressed their views, and no way in which they would ever be able to attain the expensive material goods demanded by this materialistic world. And so simply put, the riots were nothing more than nights of accelerated criminal activity, where these everyday losers of society were allowed to be winners. Being a working class individual from Brixton, I believe this story. I saw how much people struggled with their everyday lives in terms of finances while still trying to keep up with the latest fashions and biggest brands. See, this perspective made a lot of sense back then. I come to realise that perhaps there's something more meaningful than criminal opportunism that was going on. If these riots were just about consumerism, then why was our store attacked? We didn't have any expensive brands or expensive goods. Another thing that didn't make sense was that why was the damage in areas such as Oxford Circus and central London in general, where all the expensive designer stores were, so minimal in comparison to areas such as Croydon and Brixton? Don't get me wrong, the stores that were mainly targeted such as Argos, Curry's and JD are not cheap, but the rioters had just one night to go steal whatever they wanted and not be stopped by the police because of their strength in numbers then why didn't they target ultra-expensive central London stores? The absence of riots in particular areas makes little sense. So, were these riots only really driven by consumer culture, or was there more to it? To get some answers, I've reached out to Professor Tim Newburn, a professor of criminology and policy at the London School of Economics. He's written several articles on the 2011 riots. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Newburn. It's a pleasure to have you. I'd first like to ask you, do you think looting played a massive role in the London riots, or do you think that the media construed what actually happened? There are some people who argued that the looting was on a dominant scale in the London riots and became its kind of defining characteristic, and that therefore the lens, the frame through which we should see the riots was consumerism, that that's fundamentally what people were doing. They weren't involved in something political, that it was about free stuff. It was about consumerism and, and goods. I think that's a mistaken view. And it's mistaken for a variety of reasons, I think. It's mistaken because just on a crude empirical level, a huge amount went on which wasn't looting. On a similar kind of level, loads of people who were involved in the riots didn't do any looting. They did other things. Thirdly, a lot of the people who were involved in the looting were also involved in other things like attacks on the police and, and, and so forth. And the other problem that I have is that the view of those who see looting as somehow separate from 
political activity with a small p the idea that there was some kind of protest involved in this to separate those two things is wrong looting in in some respect is as it were a kind of political act itself it's a form of political violence I think that the association that many people make with the riots and looting is extremely strong. So, is there any evidence that actually the riots weren't mainly about that? In his article, Reclaiming the Everyday, the Situational Dynamics of the 2011 London Riots, Mattia Tiritelli tries to answer this question. He uses the logic behind the idea that the riots were the result of consumer opportunism to establish two hypotheses as to how the riots should have played out. Number one was that after the first night of riots, the areas targeted should have been more attractive with more retail space. And the second was that after the first night of the riots, the areas being targeted should have been more unusual in the sense that it would be out of the norm for these areas to experience retail crimes. These assumptions make sense because rioters should have gone out of their way to target areas with plenty of retail space and areas they would normally not be able to target and easily get away with. Having mapped each riot crime onto the area where it occurred and comparing it to the attractiveness of the area and how unusual it would be, Tiratelli found that there was little significance between either of them and the likeliness of a riot occurring. This is a very significant finding because it shows that the rioters were not very calculated when it came to the areas they chose. If the intent was to simply steal as much as they could, then we should have seen different patterns. Research now shows that rioters chose to stay close to their home when rioting. The average distance from home to where the rioters committed their offence was 2.2 miles, which is about a 30-minute walk. This distance varied in different areas. In Peckham, it was just 1.5 miles. Now, at this point, two conclusions came to my head. Either they were just bad criminals who were too lazy to go far, or if we view the riots as being a form of political violence, then what's the significance of staying in your local area? Tiratelli suggests that for some of the rioters, but not all, the riots were a way to reclaim the everyday. He highlights that this isn't the only dynamic at play, but evidence does suggest that the rioters chose spaces which they recognised and that were part of their everyday lives, but normally they didn't exercise any control over these areas. By controlling these everyday spaces, they were able to reclaim their everyday. This may not have been an explicitly political act for all the rioters, but the emotional energy that fueled the riots came from controlling familiar spaces. This also explains why the riots had spectators present, people who were casually standing around and watching the riots, cheering and screaming throughout the night. These bystanders were not part of the violence, but the emotional energy of reclaiming the familiar area excited these bystanders too. In Clapham Junction, the bystanders sat in the middle of the road, drinking and smoking. An almost carnival sort of atmosphere was suggested by many interviewed. In this sense, we can see the riots as being an almost celebration, a symbol of control. This explains why the rioters didn't travel very far and why areas that were targeted weren't exactly the most attractive or unusual. This idea of reclaiming space isn't new. The logic behind this method of protest is to take back power in areas where you have lost power. This same method has been used particularly in protests regarding women's rights, where women march on the streets at night to reclaim their power from sexual harassers. The first of this kind was held in Philadelphia in October 1975, after a woman was stabbed on her way home. The protests were organised to make a point that women should be able to walk anywhere and should not be blamed or restricted, as men took away the power and control that women had on the streets at night. 
women took this control and autonomy back by marching on the streets. This method has also been adopted in other movements. For example, in 2019, during the October Lebanese Revolution, revolutionaries reclaimed spaces such as hotels and resorts that were normally cut off to the public. This method of rebellion is significant because it challenges the structure and authority established in society. It immediately takes back control and power away from the oppressors and distributes it to those taking part. At this point, a few questions arise. Who were the rioters trying to reclaim their streets from? And why did they even feel the need to do so? Tiritelli doesn't really answer these questions, but I have come up with a few theories. Most obviously, maybe the rioters felt the need to reclaim their area from the police. This would make sense since the initial spark of the riots was the killing of Mark Duggan by the police, and research has suggested that riots in London were more likely to break out in areas with bad police relations. Boroughs which had more stop and searches in two and a half years before the riots were also likely to see riots in 2011. Stop and searches were highly controversial because they disproportionately targeted black people. On an everyday basis, the lives of these people within these areas was affected by their relationship with the police, who, through asserting a presence in these areas, took away their control. The built-up anger towards the police would explain why police cars were targeted during the riots and why police officers were being attacked. Through the use of such violence, the police became powerless on the streets where they normally practice power. But the issue with this explanation is that it doesn't really explain why attacks on the police were so sporadic and inconsistent. For example, in Tottenham and Hackney, there was extreme violence directed at the police, but in Croydon, rioters avoided them, despite police relations in Croydon being poor. So though reclaiming the space from the police could have been an initiative for the riots, particularly at the start, it could not be the main reason. Another suggestion could be, perhaps the riots were about class and social injustice. So Professor Newburn, do you think that the riots highlighted a class divide? Yes, I do. It certainly drew attention to the nature and consequences of social inequality in various ways. And and that's what the rioters talked about themselves. Yeah. So when we interviewed them, one of the things that they articulated regularly and clearly was their perception of a world that was hugely divided in which they were impoverished, had few opportunities, lived in a world in which those opportunities were declining further, felt that they, they and their families or their neighbourhoods were actually particularly targeted by the things that were going on. This was obviously the beginning of austerity. A link between economic factors and social disorder across Europe over the past century has been established by Jacopo Ponticelli and Hans-Joachim Voth, who argue that instability, including riots, is linked to fiscal retrenchment. This backdrop has already been seen in British history, particularly in 1981, during the Brixton riots. In 1981, official statistics show that 13% of the population in Brixton were unemployed and cuts were still imposed across the country. For example, spending on social housing fell by 60% under the Thatcher government, funding for education also suffered significant losses. Those from already disadvantaged backgrounds were particularly affected. We can see parallels in the economic backdrop of the 2011 riots. The rate of joblessness rose from 7.8% in September-November 2009 to 8.4% in the same period of 2011. Higher education fees were tripled, Due to austerity, cuts were made to local authority budgets and child benefit was also frozen, among other measures. 
Again, people from already disadvantaged backgrounds face the consequences, and since the majority of rioters came from such backgrounds, the riots have been a way for people to express their grievances and anger through controlling the streets. The rioters directly took power from those who had it and redistributed it among themselves. The government which controlled the lives of this demographic of people through imposing things such as benefit cuts and asserting a stronger presence of police could no longer control the rises or the area. Big businesses who weren't harmed by the cuts and changes in the economic landscape, despite also being in these deprived areas, now faced hardships too and the structure that protected them no longer existed. What I'm trying to suggest here is that the riots were essentially equalisers for society and bystanders celebrated this destruction where hardship was not limited to the typical demographic of people, then this doesn't explain why violence was seen against individuals or why small businesses were also attacked. At this point, I kind of began to realise that when it comes to riots and explaining why someone chose to go out and riot, there really isn't a one-size-fits-all explanation. I don't think the riots were mainly about one thing. The reality of those kinds of events is that they're extraordinarily complex. People do a lot of different things. People loot shops. People try to break into people's private flats and homes. People attack the police. People attack other citizens. There's a whole array of things going on. The reasons that people do those things, I think, are, are also enormously varied. You know, some people take to the streets because they're angry about the killing of Mark Duggan. They're more generally angry at the police. They've got some other set of, you know, frustrations. And all of those things provide a kind of context. But none of those things are uniform. To an extent, I agree with Professor Newburn. I think that for writers, the reason for writing was different and personal which explains why explanations in interviews varied so often. For some, this was a chance to fight back the police. For others, this was payback for austerity. Mark Duggan's death angered many, and for some, this was simply just a shopping spree. And many got caught up in the emotions of the moment and did things that they normally wouldn't do. But having looked at the spread of the riots, the areas in which they occurred, the demographic of people involved, I think to ignore the importance of location would be an oversimplification. Throughout interviews, the common themes of power, control, revenge and celebrating were often discussed by those arrested. And so, though I do agree that the reasons that people came out and rioted did vary, generally speaking, I think there was this underlying sense of reclaiming power and control. Now that we've discussed and understood why some rioters chose to damage their own local areas. I think it's time we talk about the effects of the riots, both during and after. If the riots were about taking back power and reclaiming spaces, like the women's marches in the Reclaim the Night movement, then there is an obvious difference between women walking on the roads at night and rioters. By reclaiming control through violence, the rioters damage the local area, which also belongs to others, though in some ways the rioters are taking back their own power they are also taking away power from other locals who have just as much of a claim to their neighbourhoods as the rioters do. I myself grieved this loss. My neighbourhood didn't feel like it was mine anymore and I was scared and angry. The sense of loss and fear was shared by others in the UK and it wasn't limited to after the riots. 
During the riot, some members of the public decided to take matters into their own hands. In South Hall, West London, hundreds of Sikh men stood outside their gurdwara with swords and bats to guard off rioters, and more than 700 men patrolled the streets at night to protect their homes. A power struggle and divide emerged between the rioters and members of the public who wanted to protect and reclaim what they saw as their own streets. Where perhaps the police or economic grievances took authority away from the riots, the rioters in turn projected and extended this loss onto others in the area. At moments such as the one in South Hall, I think the riots became a territorial dispute where different sides were laying claim and trying to assert control. News sites such as the Huffington Post even titled the behaviour of the vigilantes as an attempt to reclaim the streets, a theme which was carried on post-riots. As frustration and fear grew, local areas became disputed land which no man really controlled. And I think there's evidence to suggest that generally the public appreciated members of the community stepping up against the rioters. For example, in Dalston, Though official records don't recognise the event as being a riot, Turkish and Kurdish shopkeepers stood outside their stores to protect their businesses, and when a short video showing shopkeepers chasing away potential rioters went viral, a Facebook page was set up encouraging locals to turn out and support Turkish and Kurdish businesses in Dalston as a thank you. The event had over 6,000 people confirming their attendance. The rioters had taken away the claim that the locals had, and now, the locals were fighting back and taking back their streets through celebrating and encouraging the stores that the rioters had tried to destroy. This us versus them mentality also caused already troubled fractions within the community to worsen. For example, in Birmingham, more than 300 Sikh and Muslim men gathered where three Asian men had been killed whilst protecting the area from black looters. Some who were present were calling for a march to the homes of the attackers. Racial tensions had been high between the black and Asian community in Birmingham for years. Violent crashes even broke out in 2005. The death of three Asian men led to open talks of revenge and there was a real threat of a race riot breaking out. Community leaders had to come together to defuse the situation, though no violence did occur. The worsening of internal racial relations again shows that the riots made members of the local area feel as if they could not safely live in their own space. Rather, now they had to fight for this claim. This fraction reflects the fact that people became somewhat more tribal in the sense that some began to see race and ethnicity as being a reason for being attacked and killed and a reason for coming together and fighting back. The sense of cultural unity can be seen all over the riots. In Southall, for example, when the Sikhs got together to protect their gurdwara, or when Turkish and Kurdish shopkeepers came together to protect their stores, and obviously in Birmingham. But I think exaggerating this split could be dangerous. Racial tensions were limited to just a few areas and there were no outright clashes. Though I do think that those initial days of racial frustration reflected a brief split in the community in this sense. These frustrations were overcome due to efforts of community leaders. The fight over everyday space continued even after the riots. Through Facebook and Twitter, a cleanup campaign was organised called Hashtag Riot Cleanup. Volunteers were mobilised to help clean up across England. Around 300 people gathered in Clapham Junction alone, and then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, arrived with a broom to promote the clean-up. In Hackney, volunteers were urged by the borough's rector, Father Rob Wickham, to reclaim these streets. When Channel 4 interviewed some of the people cleaning up, comments such as, If they do this again, we do this again tomorrow. 
and this is my town and I want to clear it up, were made. Comments such as these suggest that locals felt as if they lost their right to their area because of the riots. Through cleaning up, the locals were doing the opposite of what the rioters had done. They began to undo the events that had occurred, removing the marks the rioters had left on this territory. Another split which emerged was one of class. As Imogen Tyler notes, a consensus emerged in media coverage and within the political community that the rights were of the underclass. The reaction of a lot of politicians to it, Theresa May, David Cameron, Kent Clark, a whole bunch of other commentators, was in, also infused with a kind of class-based rhetoric, which was very resonant, I thought, of a sort of Charles Murray-esque notion of the underclass. An underclass who are cut off from the mainstream, who are the products of a kind of overly generous welfare state that's contributed to a variety of social problems like family breakdown and the culture of irresponsibility. That culture of irresponsibility is the usual old trope of you can't trust poor people with money. So there's a deeply class-based snobbish interpretation of social problems. David Cameron blamed a lack of proper parenting, a lack of proper upbringing, a lack of proper ethics, a lack of proper morals. The rioters were seen as those who, because of their backgrounds, behaved as criminal outcasts. This reasoning was used to take away even more power from them after the riots were over. This reaction was reflected in how the rioters were punished for their crimes. I think what we saw was all the usual practices of the penal state, but exaggerated. More people were arrested than you'd ordinarily expect. Of those who were arrested, more were prosecuted than you would ordinarily expect. More went to prison, and those who went to prison went to prison for longer. The government emphasised on the need for harsher punishments for right-related offences, and this was seen in some severe sentences for offenders with no previous convictions, including young offenders. A 23-year-old student with no previous convictions was sentenced to a prison term of six months for stealing a pack of bottled water worth £3.50. The effect on young people of carrying a criminal record would have restricted access to employment, worsening the situation for an already struggling demographic. There were also talks of evicting convicted rioters from their council houses, and this became law in 2014. There was no evidence to suggest that evicting people from their homes would deter them from committing these offences in the future. The efforts of the government were not to deter or prevent. If we look at the penal response of the state, with the idea that the rioters were trying to reclaim their everyday and a power struggle emerged from this, it could be said that the state was removing the rioters from their space, whilst also pushing them deeper into this feeling of isolation and powerlessness that they already felt. The state itself became involved in this power struggle and was doing all it could to take back control and power from the rioters. Even when the state tried to address the structural injustices, the way they approached the task did quite the opposite. A variety of promises were made in the aftermath of the riots about investment and regeneration and so forth. And, and my sense, though I've not studied this in detail, is that those have been largely false promises. I mean, Haringey, I think, is, is, is a pretty obvious example. It's where the riots broke out. A number of promises were made by senior politicians about inward investment into Haringey. Well, there has been money, 
but a huge amount of it has gone not into, by and large, the most needy, the most impoverished communities that were most in need of material investment. You know, a huge amount of money has gone into things like the regeneration of Tottenham High Road and the, the sort of embourgeoisification of elements of Haringey. And in a way, not surprisingly, because the kind of the governmental response to the riots was essentially to deny structural problem. Cameron, then Prime Minister, said, this is criminality, pure and simple, etc, etc. It was a straightforward expression, because he went on to say, we don't need an inquiry to tell us that this was all about greed and thieving and all the rest of it. We know what went on. It's not about poverty. It's not about racism. It's not about social inequality. It's not about absence of opportunity. It's not about lack of jobs. It's not about any of those things. It's about greed. It's a problem of culture. You know, inward investment into these communities. Why would we pour money into Broadwater Farm or wherever else it might be? We're not especially interested in those places and we don't think that that's any way the issue. After the riots, £1 billion of investment was put into Tottenham. The aim was to create 10,000 new homes and 5,000 new jobs over nine years. And though this sounds like a great investment that would help the locals, they harm some of the most vulnerable people in society. In order to make these new projects, demolition of old council estates in Tottenham is required. So, for example, Lovelane Estate, which contains 297 homes, is to be knocked down to make way for a new housing scheme worth £91 million. As a result, current tenants are to be relocated somewhere else in the borough or beyond. By 2019, 80 council estates in London alone were to be demolished. Now, I'm not saying that these demolitions were a direct result of the riots, but the demographic of people, which most rioters mainly came from, were pushed further out of their local streets and lost their claim to their spaces. Perhaps this wasn't a direct intention of the government, but the trends of economic difficulty asserted before the riots continued even after. And as a result of these trends, disadvantaged demographics are losing the claim to their streets, which they had on the nights of the riots. Well, my journey of understanding, exploring and making peace with what happened that night ends here. I've learned that the consumer opportunist view is cliche, overused, and the riots were more than just about consumer culture. They were more about just brands and big stores and flashy names. For many, they were a reflection of freedom, a fight for everyday space, and an attempt to reclaim their lives. Do I think that justifies what happened? No, not completely. But do I understand it more? Yes. The riots became a fight for control of everyday space, which the public, the state and the rioters fought.